This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Time and time again, the world was warned Russia was going to attack Ukraine. And time and time again, the world ignored it. On February 24th at 3.25 a.m., local time in Ukraine. Ukraine was on its knees, begging anyone who would listen for help. This is heartbreaking. A tragic, desperate situation. They found uh, more than 400 graves outside the cemetery in Izum. The struggle to get the world to help Ukraine. Not to act and just let that brutality continue and let that brutality of Russia be awarded is for me a higher price. The impact on Ukrainians. All of us, myself and my colleagues, we are all slightly crazy by now. Vladimir Putin is at the center of it all. And so this thing is just going to keep on going on and on until we contain him somehow. Ukraine, battle for the soul of Europe. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Time and time again, the world was warned Russia was going to attack Ukraine. And time and time again, the world ignored it. On February 24th, at 3.25 a.m., local time in Ukraine, time had run out. The sound of air raid sirens have been littering the skies of Ukraine, as have rockets. The world was watching live, something it never thought would happen again after World War II, the full-scale invasion of a European country. While the U.S. and the rest of the world were contemplating those consequences, Ukrainians were suffering, like this small boy walking across the border into Poland. So much damage, so many civilian casualties. Millions were forced to leave their homes as the cadence of Russian weapons activity increased. Ukraine was on its knees, begging anyone who would listen for help. This is heartbreaking. One man who'd lost everything cried out, heaven help us. His wife and children lay dead in the street. Suffering was widespread. I woke up because of the sound of a missile flying over the house where I live. Forced to do unspeakable things. Dig mass graves to get some water and some bread. When Russia's guns finally quieted, the world could hear the voices of the victims of atrocities that fell silent when time ran out for them. It was a very misty morning, I remember. For Armand Soldin, a photographer for Agence France Presse, it was a day he'll never forget. We went there actually when we heard the news that they found uh, more than 400 graves outside the cemetery in Izium. It was the day that uh, the Ukrainian authorities also uh, organized a press tour that would only arrive in the afternoon. So we went there in the morning, sort of fresh. And, uh, and I mean, it was a bit of a, 
a bit of a shock because I mean you have to imagine this which usually should be potentially very beautiful forest and all of a sudden all these cross starting to appear uh, from nowhere in the, in the mist in that morning and so cross after cross and anonymous cross for most of them actually with only figures written on them and all of a sudden we see some forensic police uh, forensic military actually not police at first starting to dig this place by the crosses and uh, and they immediately told us that they saw a cross with written 70, uh, Ukrainian army, 17 people from the morgue in Izium. And so they were starting to dig these bodies out. So these was these were probably soldiers, uh, Ukrainian soldiers that were moved from the morgue into this mass grave. So they were in black body bags. And, um, and then on the side, we saw all the, the mining teams arriving as well to sort of check if there were any booby traps or uh, unexploded devices around the crosses. Nastya Stanko. A Ukrainian journalist was there as well. We found massive graves. Uh, it's more than uh, 400 numbers or graves. We can tell like this because, I mean, why I, I'm I'm called like this? Because, for example, in one graves uh, we found uh, 17 bodies. Uh, it was a grave of Ukrainian soldiers, and on the disc it was Christ. On this grave and on this Christ, like this pencil was writing that uh, 17 bodies, Ukrainian soldiers from uh, from like from museum. And we found uh, the in one grave. Uh, another uh, another graves, it, it mostly it's like one body in one grave, but now um, only exhumate uh, 146 bodies from uh, from this uh, massive graves and still more than 300 we are waiting and soldine said this was not a place where people were laid to rest with dignity yesterday by my eyes um i saw actually the exhumation of a former soldier and he and others had been tortured hands tight in front and he had his pants lowered Grieving, survivors combed through the wreckage of the town after the Russian troops left, many of them carrying heavy burdens and grudges. So we found this this man called Mikhailo, who is 68. He was actually still um, in the hospital nearby. He had been beaten badly, arm broken, kidneys damaged. He left the hospital, took them to a nearby torture chamber, and told his story. So he wasn't like, he, he was not in the best shape possible. And so, um, but he, he gladly accepted to come with us to, to the police station to show us uh, and tell us the story uh, of his story. So we, we, we got to this abandoned uh, police station where there was still some um, Russian inscriptions. Because you need to know like that uh, the Russian administration stayed in Izium for, from April 1st to all the way recently. So, uh, so actually, they they already installed the administration, and they they started actually, how to say, taking hold. So, uh, so we 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 get into that police station. He takes us in the second lower floor, and he recognizes his cell where he was staying with. He told us at first with four other people, then six, then eight, and he lost the counts. He said that he was beaten, that he was hearing a lot of screams coming around, that he was going on for twenty four seven, that he wasn't actually being tortured in the room itself but there was a little room on the floor just above where they were beating him with a metal bar uh, on his arm until they broke it so we need to, we're talking about a man who's 68 and uh, and apparently what the russian authorities had against him 
was that they thought that he had given uh, the coordinates of one of the schools where Ukrainian uh, Russian forces were stationed that would got bombed uh, in um, in 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 uh, it was in March or, or April. So um, so that was his crime, yeah. and uh, and so yeah, no, he said that he heard a lot of. Uh, shouting a lot of screams. There were women, men. That uh, there was a lot of coming going. He spoke about electric batons. He spoke about beating with the metal bar. He spoke about electricity. People were detained so long they lost track of time. We saw like a proper calendar marks on the wall indicating the days for for the prisoners to to keep track. Nastya Stanko. You know, we we came to Izum. We were the first journalists who came to Izum, liberated Izum, retaken Izum um, after the soldiers. I can tell like this, and uh, for me, it was so much different emotions because I saw hope. I saw how people are. Uh, happy because of this it's true you can you can see my report how they are like smile but on another hand they told us just uh, horrible things about you know relatives who were killed by air raids or neighbors who were killed uh, and uh, destroyed homes because um is a very destroyed town like on 80% maybe. I think that it's most destroyed town after Mariupol maybe, because, but we, we can't understand what's happened in Mariupol because we are not there. But we we came to Izum and saw it's horrible what's happened there. But on the other hand, they are happy that they are liberated. And, you know, it's it's so much different emotions because and after you see this massive graves and people uh, told us how like Russians... Uh, hated them and for example one guy he was uh, uh, owner of the small uh, shop product shop and he told us that eight times russian tried to try to stolen something something from this uh, shop and he he was beaten with them and they they told that they uh, they will kill him and everything you know and uh, yeah, it's it's very different emotions on the same time with the same people. Russian President Vladimir Putin on February 24th announcing the beginning of the war. When it started, a Russian general bragged Ukraine wouldn't last three days. Defiant Ukrainians pushed back. We are not afraid. A month later, Ukraine was still in the fight. And that general, Yakov Rezantsev, 48 years old, a lieutenant general, was dead. One of more than a dozen top commanders to die in Ukraine. Yevhenia Kravchuk is a member of Ukraine's parliament who lives in Kyiv. This is the first time we have a state, a state that has an army, that has a political leadership, that is not afraid to stand for, uh, for our country. I was listening to and watching an interview with one of your countrywomen who was bunkered in a shelter, hunkered down in a shelter in, in, in Kiev right now with her young children. And she was so upset. She was saying that the world is afraid of Putin because it lets him get away with things. It, you know, it doesn't want to say Putin should be removed from power. It doesn't want to 
uh, say that Putin is a killer, doesn't want to say that Putin is a terrorist, as you said. What do you think it is that makes Western nations or to some degree some people reluctant to say what's going on with Vladimir Putin? Well, you know what? I think that history repeats. Remember Hitler in 1939 when he invaded uh, Poland. I mean, other countries sort of, you know, said, okay, maybe he'll get this country and then, you know, he will stop. And, you know, it ended up in 1945 with millions of people uh, that that died. So if you try to, um, you know, to behave uh, by the rules, if you think you're behaving by the rules, but your counterpart just takes out the gun and shots you, you know, that's not how dialogue works. Uh, and uh, I think that Putin crossed so many lines, red lines, so many times that we need to wake up. This is not normal. In the run up to the war, they prepared to fight with anything they could find. There will be a rifle in every window. Malcolm Nance, a retired naval intelligence officer, went there to fight with them. Uh, the joke here is that uh, a Russian invasion would be an invitation to the largest Molotov cocktail party in the history of the world. You you live a very comfortable life here in the U.S., or at least <laughs> on the outside looking in. But you're sitting in Kiev right now, which is a hot spot, no doubt. Why? What? What? Why? Why are you there? Okay. Well, f- well. First off, I you know as a national security uh, expert, I, I really don't just work anymore in the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I did most of my initial operations when, here's a little secret, I started out as a Russian-speaking cryptologist oh, okay. uh, and transitioned over to Arabic. I would never saw uh, that in your bio. We're talking about a... a, a <laughs> we're, we're talking about a very dynamic threat. Okay. Not just to... Not just to the United States, you know, strategic interests with NATO, but again, this is a global war. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about this in a book that I had published uh, three years ago called "The Plot to Destroy Democracy," yes, which was about Putin and his spies undermining, you know, America and dismantling the West. And this is a this is a global campaign of, of not just oligarchy, but an an autocrat. Mm-hmm. who has been seeding Western Europe political bodies with right-wing fascist autocrats in order to do what Vladimir Putin said he was going to do a few years ago, which is dismantle liberal democracy. I'm at the Tallinn Baltic station, which is the main train station in Tallinn, Estonia. This is the airport in Helsinki, Finland. Coffee shop in Amsterdam. This is a busy street in Riga, Latvia. They're all a part of the Trans Europe Express. Here in these countries and all across Europe, there has been a massive attempt underway to secure weapons, funding, and cohesion for Ukraine. At times, it's been frustrating for people like Jan Stoltenberg head of NATO. Of course, yes, it has a price, but not to act and just let that brutality continue and let that brutality of Russia be awarded is for me a higher price. And he said that high price comes with a clear message. Where big powers can decide what smaller neighbors can do. And that will make all of us more vulnerable. And he said if the atrocities taking place there don't move them. So even if you don't care about the moral aspect of this, supporting the people of Ukraine, you should care about your own security interests. 
As frustrated as Stoltenberg is, it's nothing compared to Ukrainians. All of us, myself and my colleagues, we're all slightly crazy by now. You know, we're not we're not normal. Yuri Sack is an advisor to Ukraine's Minister of Defense. There is something very sinister and dark going on in Ukraine uh, right now, and um, it's been called what it seems like, and that is genocide. Um, tell me what you and your colleagues and your fellow countrymen are seeing on the ground there that makes this qualify as genocide. Well, what we are seeing on the ground indeed qualifies to us as genocide, and I don't think just to us, but to the international community as well. And we have already seen some international leaders, including Joe Biden, uh, call what happens in Ukraine a genocide. And there are very concrete reasons why is that. Because what we have in Ukraine is not actually a military campaign of one country against another. What we are seeing in Ukraine is a deliberate, willful killing of Ukrainian people just by virtue of us being Ukrainians. Just so that you understand, uh, the mayor of the city of Bucha, which is today, unfortunately, uh, known around the world for its mass atrocities. So the mayor of this city said that they have dug out a number of mass graves by, by today, and 85% of the bodies that they've exhumed from those graves, they have uh, they, they have uh, traces of uh, sh- shots in the head. So people were killed not by shrapnel, not by some remnants of some uh, shells or missiles. People were deliberately shot in the back of their heads. We've been living in an abnormal situation. In a strange way, we are beginning to be to get used to it, and it's a, it's a frightening feeling. It's a feeling a lot of people in Europe might have to get used to. If Ukraine falls to Russia, Europe is over. Wisdom from Kurt Volker former U.S. ambassador to NATO. What that means to me is this idea that Europe is a place where all of its people can live in freedom and democracy. That idea is lost. And if that idea is lost, a new Iron Curtain, no doubt, will drop around Europe. To be very frank, it was like living in the prison. When you cannot say what you think, when you cannot go where where you want, when you have to have double life, something what you say in the public and other things, the values that you have in the family, even celebrating Christmas or Hanukkah or something, it was not official, you couldn't do that. I would say it was really like big prison. Wow. And that was, so that's why I think we are so much fighting and for others as well, not only for ourselves, because we know how it's to live when you are prevailed by the basic human rights and freedoms. And if Ukraine loses this war, not only does the Iron Curtain return, but so does widespread persecution. Andrei Soldatov, an investigative journalist from Russia, knows all too well. I might be put behind bars for up to 10 years. The Kremlin is hunting him because he's a threat. Vladimir Putin has been always paranoid about himself and his security. Remember that he is uh, he has two intelligence agencies, uh, uh, excuse me, two intelligence agencies in charge of his uh, personal protection. Uh, so he has with uh, Federal Protective Service and also the Service of, of the Protection of the President. He also, uh, well, well uh, he says that uh, he survived 12 or 13 
also seeing attempts on his life. So he's been paranoid for many, many years. That is why we do not have information about his family. He's always hiding these facts about his daughters. It's all about his protection. It's all about his personal security and safety. So I think he is getting even more paranoid these days because the circle of people who are in position to tell him something and he would listen to is getting even smaller. Five years ago, it was about maybe two thousands of people. Now it's probably about three, four people. That is a big difference. <laughs> that is a it big. Is. It is, and I think the other problem is that Putin still thinks of himself as a highly trained intelligence officer. So he was always uh, very proud of himself of being the best informed politician in the world, probably on the planet. He always uh, loved to throw you uh, his knowledge of statistics and all that things. So he believes in himself that he knows everything much better than his intelligence agencies. And obviously it makes things really difficult for his security and intelligence agencies to tell him something which uh, he doesn't expect to, hear, uh, to listen. Another person who knows what it's like to be in that situation is Bill Browder, CEO and co-founder of Hermitage Capital Management. The, the problem with Vladimir Putin is that his psychology is not one where he can ever show weakness, defeat. He has no reverse gear. Putin is an extremely paranoid man. You've seen him sitting at the edge of 30-foot tables and, and sitting in bunkers and all this kind of stuff. He is so worried about dishonesty, disloyalty. He's looking for it. He's trying to create it. And he's, and he's looking to um, arrest people who he thinks are disloyal, um, kill people who are disloyal. And, and any chance that there's any kind of disloyalty in the ranks, um, he is trying to root out right now. And for several years, we've spoken about your situation, um, and, and you, you've you've written about it too. How the Kremlin and, and the Putin regime have, have tried to get you. Um, haven't heard a lot about that lately. So, um, but I don't think for a second that that's changed. Am I incorrect? Are they still uh, making efforts to lure you or take you back to Russia some way? No, no question. Uh, so once they make a decision. That, that somebody is an enemy of the regime, then they, they switch on a button. And, um, and when that button is switched on, then, then all sorts of people in the regime, in the apparatus, then get to work on going after the enemy. And I'm on that list. They continue to go after me. I mean, look at Salman Rushdie, okay? Um, he had a, so he had an Iranian fatwa 32 years ago, and he finally, they finally got him my Putin fatwa came out about 12 years ago, and it's m probably much more active than any Iranian fatwa against him. I mean, my, my attacks on Putin are very specific, very direct, and, and very debilitating compared to what he did. And so I don't think in any way that I'm safe. I don't think in any way I should let my guard down because they continue to pursue me. And Browder issues us all a stark warning. And so this thing is just going to keep on going on and on until we contain him somehow. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, January 2023. Three main stories to keep an eye on. Ukraine, Sudan, and Iran. And we'll have details, exclusive conversations in our next episode. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, 
at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. Jay Green at WTOP.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. This is the Target USA Moment, Episode 16, The Drone Killing of Anwar Elalaki, with retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel T. Mark McCurley, who commanded the mission that we got the green light that morning to conduct the operation. And uh, the only time that unit called us is when they needed something. And knowing what was at stake when that call came, I knew what it was going to be. What went through your mind? How fast can I get him out of the hangar and, and off the ground? The only time that unit called us is when they needed something. And knowing what was at stake when that call came, I knew what it was going to be. No one alive, at least among those that are able to talk about it, knows what Olaki's last moments were like and what he saw and experienced when the Hellfire missile came in. But McCurley had a very unique experience. He's written a book about it called Hunter Killer, and he shared with us exactly what happened in another situation very similar to Olaki's. And uh, I'm reminded of uh, one of the, the stories in Hunter Killer uh, of a facilitator that we had to take out. And the, the ultimate goal of the operation was to eliminate him to enable us to capture more than a dozen operatives he had around the world uh, getting ready to do a coordinated terror strike. Uh, and we couldn't risk him warning them off as we started rolling up these teams. Uh, in the last couple of seconds, uh, because of how low I had to get, uh, because of weather, uh, to make the shot happen, he heard the missile come in, he looked right at me through the camera of the airplane. Uh, and so I basically, even though it bridged 8,000 miles, I looked him in the eye as he died. This has been a Target USA Moment, episode 16. Download it, relive it. For nine years, a man terrorized women across the D.C. region. The more the victims resisted, the more violent he became. Breaking into homes and raping his victims before killing a brilliant young scientist in 1998. Then he suddenly stops, leaving police with a lot of clues and one unknown subject. I'm Paul Wagner. Join me for Unknown Subject, Season 3 of WTOP's American Nightmare podcast series, available October 4th on all podcast platforms. 